Um, you may have noticed that last year, Alyssa and I weren't here. We were in Edmonton. We had the privilege of, of serving and, and speaking at one of my best friends' church, in, Kingdom Church in Edmonton. And so uh, it was a fun time. It was an enjoyable time. But it's good to be back, good to be able to share with you today. And uh, we are going to be heading off to camp for the next two weeks. And then we'll be back for a week and then back again for another week as we do uh, youth camp. So this has been an incredibly busy and, and uh, fun summer for us. But today we are continuing on with our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, and for those of you who may not be so familiar with this series, uh, throughout this series, which we started back in September, um, it's a series that goes through the major stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And as we journey through this series, we discover uh, some of the amazing ways and some of the profound and unexpected ways that God reveals his love through these stories. We discover how God often acts in ways that are contrary to our historical, cultural, and social expectations. And the great thing about the unexpected love of God is that we discover that God isn't restrictive or closed off or discriminatory. In fact, we find the opposite through these stories. We find that, that the love of God is far deeper, far wider, far higher than we could possibly imagine. It's far more accepting, open, and without prejudice than we might first believe. Sometimes, and we'll read through these stories, sometimes controversially so. And so today we are starting uh, our, our series through, through 2 Samuel now. We're, we're just starting the book of 2 Samuel. And so now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is a story that uh, many of you may be familiar with and might not know that you're familiar with it. How many of you guys have ever seen the, I forget how old it is now, the 19-somethings the um, Footloose with Kevin Bacon. You guys ever seen that movie? Not the, not the newer Kevin, not the newer Footloose that came out in like 2000 something, but the old one, uh, the old Footloose uh, with Kevin Bacon. Fantastic movie. I love that scene where he's dancing off in the, um, in the like warehouse, the industry section by himself. Ask Alyssa, sometimes I do that dance by myself at home. Doesn't look as great. I won't do it here, um, but, but it's fun to do. Um, and I, I'm tempted to, but I won't do it. Um, but, you might be familiar with this story because this is the story that Kevin Bacon's character quotes when he goes before the, the whole council and the whole uh, city council. And so this is 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles with you, don't worry about it. We have it available on the screen for you to follow along. We'll be reading from the New International Version. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1. It says this, David again brought together all of the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. And they set the Ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding this new cart. With the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. Verse 5 says this, David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might. Picture that for a second. Celebrating, 30,000 plus men celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals, this cacophony of music. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And verse 7 says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. This abrupt end to this celebration, to this praise, to this worship. You know, after the death of Saul, uh, Jonathan, and, and, and after the death of Saul and Jonathan, sorry, David was finally crowned as king over Israel. Saul and Jonathan died at the hands of the Philistines in war, and now, now David, who had been previously uh, anointed by Samuel and declared as the next ruler of Israel, he was finally king over Israel. And there arose in, in chapter 5, chapter 4, chapter 3, there arose some contention between the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah, the tribe of, of David. Uh, and eventually, under David's leadership and with the help of some of his advisors and some of his, his generals, uh, they united all the tribes of Israel under David's leadership. And then David goes and, and he conquers the city in chapter 5, and he, he establishes uh, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, the capital for the kingdom of Israel, and he makes preparations for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to this capital city. You know, it had previously, it says in verse 6, it had, or in chapter 6, it had previously resided in the house of Abinadab, but now that David was king, he wanted the Ark to be near his palace. And so the people, they placed the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart, brand new cart, and they begin this journey of bringing it from Abinadab's house to the city of Jerusalem, to the palace of David. And things are going pretty good so far. They're traveling along the journey. There's, there's this praise and celebration. There's this long procession with lots of noise, lots of, uh, of music. And, and suddenly, the oxen stumble. Something happens. The oxen stumble, and it, it appears as if the ark might fall off of the cart. And so, and so Uzzah, one of Abinadab's sons, who is, who is along guiding the cart, he stretches out his hand, and he, and he seeks to steady the ark. And then what does the story say? It says he dies for touching the ark. And it seems like a pretty crazy overreaction. Because sometimes we read in these stories some, some of the things that the author says that God does, and it appears that it's a pretty crazy overreaction, especially considering that it didn't seem like Uzzah did anything too wrong. Right? I mean, the ark's about to fall. The ark houses the Ten Commandments, it houses the, uh, the, the bread, the manna, it houses the rod of Aaron, it, it's supposed to represent the presence of God. And so Uzzah is doing a good thing, stopping the ark from falling off of the cart. But what we're seeing, or what we're not seeing yet though, because at first reading it sounds pretty crazy, but what we actually read when we read the story, when we understand the context of the Israelite nation and God and their relationship with God, uh, there's this religious complexity that is going on that is going to shed a bit of light on what is really going on with Uzzah and the ark, and we're going to discover that today. And this is our first lesson, we'll explore this idea uh, a bit today, but our first lesson is this, God is holy. That's our first lesson. God is holy. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was representative of God's presence. Wherever the Ark was, that's where God went. That's what they believed. If you remember, we discovered a story a couple of uh, weeks ago where um, Samuel and, and the people of Israel, they are, they are losing this battle against the Philistines. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant thinking that God would automatically go with them. That God would have to be there in their presence. And, they, and unfortunately, they lose, and the ark gets captured, and there's this whole thing, right? But, but the ark of the covenant was representative of God's presence. It was a symbol of God residing with his people. 
The ark is this special object, this relic in Israel's relation to God. And as such, God had given them specific instructions on how to care for and maintain and carry the ark, this symbol or emblem of their relationship uh, between God and the people. And, and God had told them uh, in, in the earlier books of Moses that the ark was to be carried on two long poles. They had fashioned it in a way that these poles could slip through these slots and they would carry the ark on two long poles and there would be four Levite priests, one on each end of the pole, carrying the ark of the covenant. And, and the Levite priests were supposed to be from a very specific uh, line of, of, of Levites. It was from the family of, of, of Kohath. The Kohathites were the ones that were supposed to carry this Ark of the Covenant. Only members of this family line were supposed to carry the Ark and care for it, and care for the other holy items in the system of sacrifice in the tabernacle. And so David and Israel were already in the wrong by, first of all, not following God's instructions and by putting the Ark on a cart. It seemed like an okay thing. It seemed like it's not that big of a deal. But God had already told them, this is how you're supposed to carry it. This is how, how you're supposed to maintain it. Do it this way, and, and we won't have any, any issues. There won't be any problems, because, because God tells them, he's like, if you don't do this way, surely you will die. And we'll, ex we'll explain, we'll explore why this happens. Um, but you've got to remember that there is a, this is a different time. This is completely different than the context that we live in today. They lived in a different world than ours. The way they related to God was completely different than the way that we related to God. And so, God often worked in ways and manifested himself in ways that were within the parameters of their cultural understandings. You guys following so far? If, if, for example, I always use this example. Um, if God is speaking to a group of people in Mexico, is he going to speak Chinese to them? Probably not, unless they speak Chinese for some odd reason. He'll speak Spanish to them. If God is speaking to a group of people in Canada, who are primarily Canadian raised and don't have a second language that they know, what language will he speak? English. If he speaks to a group in Africa, whatever language they speak in all the different varieties of different countries, he'll speak to whatever language people speak. The way that God interacts with people is a way that we understand him, is a way that is relatable to us. God will never speak to us in ways that we don't understand. Does that make sense? So God is speaking to the Israelites, and God is relating to the Israelites in ways that they understand. But, and this is kind of part of our series, that although God works in those ways, although God works within the parameters, he also pushes the boundaries sometimes to better reveal his love for his creation. And so he operates still, though, in ways that they best understand. And this is why God manifests his holiness in objects, in relics, in those times and not now. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We don't have uh, the, 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 the lamps, and, and we don't have the wash basin that they used to have. We don't have these holy relics that only the priests can touch anymore. It's a different context. It's a different time. It's a different culture. And so God is relating to them in ways that they understand. And so God primarily related to them in ancient Eastern expectations. So he worked with relics. He worked with objects. He imbued his holiness in them. And so when God manifests his holiness in the ark, and someone disobeys God's command and touches the ark, the only natural recourse is unfortunately death. And I'll explain why. Because sinfulness cannot exist in the presence of the fullness of God's glory and holiness. Yes. Yes. So you imagine 
entering a dark room and turning on the lights, what happens? What happens to the darkness? It disappears, right? It's gone. Darkness, the very properties of darkness, cannot exist in the very properties of light, right? And so it's the, it's the exact same thing. The mere presence of light extinguishes the darkness, and that's how we relate to God's holiness. When the ark contains the properties of God's holiness, the fullness of his holiness, something sinful cannot come into contact with it. So then, Uzzah, being a human, a, a sinful by nature, comes in contact with the ark, and he dies. The property of the ark being holy and the property of Uzzah being sinful naturally leads to only one conclusion, which is death. It cannot stand in the presence. It's the same way that if we were to stick our hand into a burning fire, to an open flame, we'd be burnt. It's not the fire's fault, per se. You might want to blame the fire. But it's not the fire's fault, per se. It's just the properties of heat. That's what he does. It burns things, right? And so this is what we find out, is that God is holy. The properties of God is holiness. So when he imbues his holiness in the ark, unfortunately, when it came into contact with the sinfulness of Uzzah, it was eradicated the same way that light eradicates darkness. And so in relating to his creation, God manifested his holiness in the relics and objects of the sanctuary. God then gave them instructions on how to deal with these holy objects because he knew that sin dies in the presence of the fullness of his holiness. So God didn't, even though the Bible says, the author says God struck Uzzah down, it's not that God actively killed Uzzah in anger for touching the ark. It's the fact that the community had failed to listen to God's warnings, and unfortunately Uzzah became subject to the natural outcome of a holy to unholy interaction. Does that make sense? You guys following so far? Right? But there's no ark today. There's no relic today that, that God has blessed in extraordinary ways he, 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 the way he had done it in the times of Israel. So how do then we, how, how then do we connect to the fact that God is holy? How do we relate to that? Because there's no ark that we can not touch, right? Um, but we connect to God, uh, to the holiness of God by honoring him, by worshiping him, by praising him, by respecting him, by giving him all these things that he is due. Because God is not something to be taken for granted. He's not an object to be carried around to fight our battles for us the way the Israelites thought he could be. He's not a genie to be released from his bottle whenever we want our wishes granted, as much as we would like God to work like that sometimes. That's not the way he works. He's not a weapon. Listen to this. He's not a weapon to be used to manipulate people and force them to conform to our own personal ideologies. Because we'll see that a lot. God is holy. God is worthy of respect. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of a committed, serious relationship from us. God is our father. He is our comforter. He is our friend. But these relational attributes in no way diminish the holiness of God. He is still the creator of the universe. He is still the sovereign ruler over all existence. He is still the king of kings and lord of lords, the way, the truth, and life, the only way to salvation. But let me say this. The fact that God is holy makes the sacrifice so much more powerful. The fact that a holy God would love unholy people. The fact that a perfect love God would love imperfect people makes it so much more powerful. Right? And let's keep reading 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9. It says this, David was then afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take of the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord, what does it say? It says the Lord blessed him and his entire household. You know, understandably, David is afraid. He's afraid of what's just happened. He's afraid of what he's just seen. And he knows that they've done something wrong. So instead of continuing forward and plowing through in their disobedience and in their mistake, instead of risking something else, he decides to leave it with a man named Obed-Edom. And it stays there for three whole months. And during that entire time period, the story says that God blessed Obed and his whole household. You know, that was the purpose of the ark. It was, it was God's presence. It was the embodiment of God's holy, holiness. But the purpose of the ark was to bless God's people. God is holy. But he's also good. And this is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this. The blessings will follow. Amen. The blessings will follow. You see, while God is holy, while he is worthy of respect and honor and worship, he is also primarily good. Everything that is good and right and perfect in the world is derived from the goodness of God. The same way that sin cannot exist in the fullness of God's holiness, evil cannot exist in the fullness of God's goodness. And the blessings of God's goodness, wherever God's presence is, there is goodness. There is blessing. Wherever God's presence rests, the blessings will follow. You see, the ark was God's presence in the Old Testament. And when it came to the house of Obed, the blessings followed. And it wasn't just Obed that was blessed. The story says that his entire household was blessed. And if you read the stories in Deuteronomy, when God lists the blessings and the curses, he tells Israel that they will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. He says you will be blessed when you get up and when you lie down. He says you will be blessed in your crops and blessed in your livestock. And this is the thing, is that the blessing of God extends to whatever good we lay our hands on. God's blessing isn't just an aura of good feeling. You guys hear that? God's blessing is not just an aura of good feeling. God's full blessing extends to our work, to our relationship, to our finances. How many of you guys want to be blessed in your finances? I, I sure do. God's fullness of his blessing rests in our finances, in our households, in our family, in our goals, in our dreams. God's blessings extends more to just, just the physical person. It extends to everything we touch, lay our hands on, interact with, become involved with. God's fullness of blessing exists for every aspect of our lives, for our dreams as well. And speaking of dreams, I'm sure you've heard it probably recently in the last decade, more than in any other time, the idea of following your dreams. Have you guys, how many of you guys have ever heard that phrase, follow your dreams? if anyone has ever told you to follow your dreams and we're encouraged when someone says this to put everything aside put it all away whatever it is in the pursuit of whatever our dream is we're encouraged to do whatever it takes to follow our dreams but let me tell you something this is important i don't need to follow my dreams Interesting. i follow god yeah, and my dreams follow me no, that makes sense. oh goodness guys you guys are not listening these are not excited. You guys have no ambitions for your life, right? You guys have no goals. You guys have no dreams. Everything is hunky-dory. There's nothing to complain about. There's nothing that you could need more of. There's nothing that you want in your life. Am I wrong? <laughs> I'm probably wrong, right? You don't need to follow your dreams because when you follow God, your dreams follow you. Yeah, Amen. Come on. Yeah. 
the blessings will follow. That's what the story says. When you choose to welcome the presence of God into your life, when you follow in the place of his goodness and of his presence, wherever he goes, the blessings will follow. You don't need to follow your dreams because when you follow God, your dreams follow you. But the fullness of God's blessings only come with his presence. Wherever he is, that's where the blessing is. So if you want to experience God's blessing, every blessing that he has for us, if we want our dreams to follow us, we need to be willing and open to abide in the presence of God by acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And when we are in his presence, the blessings will follow. Second yeah, Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, let's keep reading. We'll finish off. The majority of the, of the chapter here, verse 12, it says this. Now King David was told the Lord had, has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God, because of the presence of God. And so David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David, and this is the verse that, that Kevin Bacon quotes, yeah. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with a sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord is entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all of the people went to their homes. And when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In verse 21, David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you have spoken of, I will be held in honor. See, David hears that God's blessings have come to Obed-Adam and to his whole household, and he feels that God must have not been displeased anymore, so he sets out to bring the ark and bring it back to the city, and, and this time the ark is brought in a proper way. If you read the story, you said that the people carrying the ark, this is the priest that, that they were supposed to carry the ark, so David does it right this time. And then it says that once they had gone six steps, which is, by the way, not literal six steps, but more like a mile, it's a representative steps, they figured that God was pleased with the way that they were bringing the ark back, so they made the sacrifice of praise. And the procession begins. The celebration, the, the parade, the cacophony of music, the worship begins to, to, to resound wherever it is that they go, and the ark marches forward, and David wears this linen ephod, which is the cloak of the priests, and he dances, it says, with all of his might, with all of his strength before the Lord. But the story goes that Michal, Saul's daughter and David's wife, watches David dancing in the streets and she becomes indignant 
with him and begins to despise him in her heart, it says. And she yells at him and she chastises him for his behavior. She says, for dancing half naked in the streets before the people, before slave girls, and before the servants, before the peasants of the land. So she says. And I'm assuming that David probably got hot <laughs> wearing that linen ephod and probably took it off, and so he's just kind of dancing uh, shirtless. But, but Michal, if you read the story carefully, Michal does not really have a problem with David being shirtless in general. She, she doesn't care about that. She doesn't have a problem with David dancing, per se. That's not the issue that she takes. The problem she has is with the fact that the king is out on the street making a fool of himself in the eyes of her kingdom, in front of the peasants and the slaves, in front of the lower people of society. Her pride demanded that the king act in a manner that she deemed dignified. And David responds by reminding her that God had chosen him as king over her father, over her brother, over any of the other people in her household. And he says this, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes by, by these slave girls you have spoken of. I will be held in honor. This is what David says. David says, you think this is undignified? He says, I will praise God. And if you think this is humiliating, I will humiliate myself even further. He says, I will become even more undignified, but the world will see me and honor me because I am shameless in my praise. That's what David says. You see, Michal was embarrassed and ashamed of the way that David was expressing praise publicly, but David didn't care. He didn't care what other people thought. Uh, if his praise was embarrassing, he'd embarrass himself further. If his praise was undignified, he'd become even more undignified. If his praise made people uncomfortable, he wasn't going to stop anytime soon. And this is our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. No shame in praise. No shame in praise. When we praise, we don't do it for other people. Our expression of praise is not for the benefit of those around us. We don't praise so that people might see us and think that we're good Christians. We praise for the glory of God. Amen. We worship for the glory of God. We can praise in our house. We can praise alone in our car. We can praise corporately in congregation with other people. But whether we are alone or whether we are in the company of thousands of people, our praise is to an audience of one. Just one. Our praise is to an audience of one, the only thing that matters in praise is who we lift the praise to. The only person whose opinion matters in regard to how we praise is the opinion of the one we're praising, of Jesus. Whether we're hands up or hands down, whether we're standing still or we're dancing around like David with all of his might, it doesn't matter because there is no shame in praise. We know that God is holy. We know that he is worthy of respect and honor and worship, but somewhere along the lines in Christianity, we have equated God's holiness with quietness and, and stiffness, right? And I'm sure the majority of us have been to come from or grow up in a church where the idea of praises is standing still and hands down, right, at attention, where, where, where we're repeating the words on the screen and where the atmosphere feels more like a funeral than a celebration, I'm not knocking on other churches. If, if that's the way you praise, fantastic. There is no shame in praise. The way you praise is the way you praise, as long as you're praising the one who deserves praise. Right? Maybe you feel different than that. Maybe you feel like you grew up in a different place. Look at my box. But you're still stuck 
in your one foot by one foot box, right? Praising, and you can't bust out of this. And you're like, if I step too far, that's just too much. And if I feed her too wide, then that's just not, that's, I can't do it. You know what I mean? Maybe one hand is, 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 is that's the max. I, sometimes I'm scared, to, I'm scared to raise up my second hand. I only do one hand. I'm scared to do the second one. But maybe just one hand is too much. Maybe you're like, this is too high because you might see my sweat stains. So I'm just like down here. Right? Maybe you're down here. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're just over here. Wherever it is, it doesn't matter, right? But we feel sometimes stuck in our prayers. Right? We feel like we have to conform to what other people are doing around us. But, but there is no shame in praise. There should not, never be any shame in praise. And, and I'm not saying that you need to start shaking and and running around the room and running between the aisles and jumping over people's heads. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that in Jesus, you don't have to be ashamed of praise. Right? Now, just a disclaimer. If your praise is hitting other people in the face, then maybe take it, down, maybe take it back a bit. Right? Maybe respect the space and the people around you, but there is a difference between respecting the space around us and being ashamed of praising. There's a difference. Right? Have you guys... Ever seen? Do you guys ever watch sports? I don't watch a lot of sports. I watch a couple things here and there. But if you guys ever watch like a lot of sports, if you guys are into sports, um, maybe sports that aren't tennis or golf, because in golf, when someone scores, it's just like contained, right? Or one for one for box, right? Or in golf, it's just like that's just it's this, right? That's it. There's no big celebration. But if you've ever seen, I watch uh, soccer, not like throughout the season, but I, I just watch it every four years when when the World Cup is on. Uh, but if you've ever seen football or soccer, you've seen the celebrations. You've seen that when someone scores, it's not just the person scoring, it's the whole team celebrating, especially in soccer, right? When someone scores, the whole like sidelines, the people who have never played a game on TV at all are out there running and cheering and celebrating, right? And if you watch football at all, you'll know that, that one of the things that people love to see the most is a touchdown dance, right? I just love when you see a touchdown dance. I, know, I, don't, I don't watch football, but... but I have a touchdown dance. If I ever did a touchdown, if I ever somehow played, and I don't even care what, if it's like minor leagues, whatever, community league, I, I'd have a touchdown dance. Everybody has a touchdown dance. You know what I'm saying? Everybody has some form of celebration, or what about like the lottery, right? If you won the lottery, what if you won the lottery tomorrow? How would you feel? Would you be like, yes. Yes, thank you. That's it, right? That's how you feel. You feel stuck. You're like, oh, I can't celebrate any further. I can't leave my one foot, one foot box. Gotta stay here, right? You, 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 you jump around. You might scream. You wouldn't say, woohoo, hooray. Even this is too much, right? Hooray. You wouldn't do that. You'd celebrate. You'd praise. You'd be happy. You'd jump for joy. You might have a dance, right? You have a touchdown dance. You have a lottery dance. There's no Jesus there. And it seems preposterous to have a Jesus dance, but what's so preposterous about that? Because scoring points in high-stakes games are, are great, awesome, fantastic, a reason to celebrate. Winning the lottery is great, awesome, a reason to celebrate. But what Jesus did for you on the cross is the best thing that will ever happen to you. That's not loud enough. You're a little ashamed. <laughs> what Jesus did on the cross is the best thing that will ever happen to you. A little more, a little more, a little more. It's not for me, it's for Jesus. 
What Jesus did on the cross is the best thing that will ever happen to you. Yes. Because that's not for me. You don't celebrate me. I didn't tell you something new. I didn't do anything. I just told you what you already knew that Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did for you is the best thing that will ever happen to you. And, and, and winning the, the grace of Jesus, not even winning it, receiving the free gift of the grace of Jesus is infinitely greater than any Super Bowl or Lotto 649. You've won something that no amount of money or spectacular feats of strength and determination could ever win you. You have won the lottery of grace. You have won an invaluable, priceless gift that cost the Son of God his very life. This is the gift of mercy and salvation that comes only through the cross of Christ, a free gift. But we don't have a salvation dance. We don't have a Jesus dance. We show far more joy and less shame in celebrating just the idea of winning all of these zeros in our bank account than we do about celebrating the freedom and the salvation and the gift of eternal life that is ours through the sacrifice of Jesus. See, Jesus has given us freedom. He's given us life. There can be no shame in praise. See, David danced and praised with all of his might, the Bible says. But what would it look like if we praised with all of our might? What might it look like if we lived a, a, a life that honored God with all of our strength and all of our efforts, with all of our heart, with all of our soul? I invite the band to come on up as we close and as, as we get ready for, for another round of worship. But God is worthy, and understand this, God is worthy of all of our efforts. God is worthy of all of our might. God is worthy of all honor and respect and worship because he is holy. We cannot forget that the Jesus we serve is the same Jesus that is the God of the whole universe. He is our friend. He is our ever-present help. He is our comforter. He is our savior. But none of these attributes or qualities diminish his holiness in any way. He is still, Jesus is still the Lord of lords. He is still the author of creation. He is the king of kings. He is the defeater of sin. He is the conqueror of death. He is supreme over all things. He is infinitely merciful and holy beyond comprehension. Jesus and God is holy. And wherever God goes, his holiness follows. Wherever God goes, his goodness is there. Wherever God goes, the blessings will follow. When we welcome God into our lives, when we abide in his presence, we become recipients of the fullness of his goodness and the fullness of his blessings. When God lives with us, not only are we blessed, but everything that we touch, everything we're involved in, every aspect of our lives is also blessed. We and our entire household are blessed. The blessings follow. We don't have to follow the blessings. We don't have to follow our dreams because when we follow God, the dreams follow us. The blessings follow. And the goodness of God is reason alone to praise. But even beyond that, we praise him for the freedom and the salvation that we experience in Jesus and in Jesus alone. If praising God is undignified, if being a follower of Jesus is humiliating, then just watch. Because I am willing to become more undignified. I am willing to humiliate myself to no end because I know there is no shame in praise. Romans 1 verse 6 
says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of Jesus that brings salvation to everyone who believes. What might the world be like? What might our community around us be like if we stop being ashamed of Christ and share with others the power of the Jesus that has set us free? What might our church look like if we praised like David with all of our strength and with all of our might? How might our lives change if we fully grasp the magnitude of Jesus and his sacrifice for us? See, I want to be more like David in this story. I want to be unbound, unrestricted, unashamed of the joy and expression of praise, unafraid to pour out my heart and my soul to God in front of anyone and everyone around me. I want that shameless praise. Knowing that praise is an expression of infinite gratitude and boundless joy, the joy that I experienced because Jesus gave up his life for me. There is no shame and praise. And because of what Jesus did for me, I can be shameless in my praise.